The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Doreen Dr. Doreen Grandpichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Dr. Grandpichet, for those of you who don't know, is an amazing, amazing, I think the preeminent expert in the field of autism. And she's a visionary. Uh, and, and you founded uh, the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. You also founded Autism Care and Treatment Today, a wonderful mm -hmm. charity. And she gives us this time every Wednesday, an hour where she answers your questions in real time, which I, I always think about when we start this, I always think how much that would have meant to me in the very earliest days of autism if I had known that I could have asked you a question Oh my gosh. So I'm so thrilled and proud that we have her Thank you pretty much, much on a weekly basis, sometimes with little breaks because you have to be other places. Right. Um, and we appreciate, we're grown-ups, we appreciate that sometimes you're called away to other Thank places. Thank you very much. But thrilled to have you here. We do give the disclaimer at the start of the show that even an expert of Dr. Grampy-Shea's caliber cannot give individual specific advice in this format. It just doesn't work that way. Right. It would be disrespectful to the person who's on the autism spectrum that, you know, that you're asking questions about. But please send in your questions. And we, by the way, we welcome questions from parents, teachers, practitioners, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and most especially from individuals who are on the autism spectrum themselves. I know more and more uh, individuals are writing in with questions and we absolutely love that. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a big, beautiful spectrum of a community and everybody is welcome to write in with their questions. Absolutely. So having said that, uh, we've, we have seven pages of questions, but we're going to be looking at what you guys have to say. Hey, Dottie Davis, we see that you're watching. Uh, thrilled to have you here with us. And uh, those of you, if you want to write in, I know uh, we used to in the past uh, tell Dr. Grampichet when you guys would write in and say where you're from. And we'll try to squeeze that in uh, from time to time because I know that gets really exciting. I want to start with uh, some questions and we'll get through as many of them we'll as we fast. can. Yes. All right. Uh, some of the ones in the beginning are really easy. About mm -hmm. how long does it typically take from beginning of an application with CARD until the beginning of therapy? Right. So for, uh, that is variable. And uh, a, I, I just, just sort of want to explain the process of when someone applies to CARD. So if you go on our website, generally you're entering through our website and you will then go through to admissions. And what the admissions team does, we are on their back all the time so that they're as fast as they possibly can be. So admissions will send you some forms to fill out basic stuff and you will then send us your basic information, which is essentially your insurance card and 
most of our clients are insurance funded, so that's the process. And then they will submit that information. They'll contact your insurance company for coverage. Now that is then out of our hands at that point. Usually we will get a verification that you have coverage, but not what type of coverage, what amount of coverage, what is your policy, what's your copay, what's your coinsurance, all that sort of stuff is good stuff that we need to wait on your insurance company to give back to us. Um, some insurance companies have uh, information listed on their website about different policies, very few do. Uh, most of them actually just last year in 2017 started to accept uh, requests from us online. Uh, up to that point, believe it or not, we had to fax in requests. Fax, yes, that good old fax machine. We still have fax machines only because of this purpose. So uh, it is really, some of the delay has to do with the insurance company. Then we receive the, the authorization only for an initial evaluation. And so then we get to schedule the initial evaluation with one of our supervisors and you, and then you go in and the supervisor conducts an evaluation. Various insurance companies will have different requests, so some will have testing requirements. Then we have to schedule testing to be done for your child. They will always, every insurance company will require a diagnosis um, which could be within the last couple of years, but they will request the diagnosis and some will want verification of the diagnosis through testing, such as the ADOS. Those types of things will tend to delay the process. Um, we, of course, do conduct this testing, but we're not always in this, where you are. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is some of your insurance companies request home observations, school observations. We have to do all of that. And once we've done all of that, we have to generate a report with recommendations based on what we feel is appropriate for your child. That all has to be written up, submitted to the insurance company again. Uh, our, we get all of that done usually within a month. Then that goes to the insurance company and then we have to sit on it and wait for the insurance company to authorize. That then gets your case transferred to authorization. In authorization, our authorization department, while we're waiting on that, we will sit, give you a bunch of paperwork to fill out, which now is getting to be extensive because it's not just paperwork for your insurance company, but it's assessments for your child. And the faster you fill that out, that helps us. And then once we get the authorization from the child, we from the insurance company, we have a limit of 30 days in which to start. So the whole process maximum should be no more than three months, uh, but generally it's running around that time because it's very new to, to insurance companies, this whole field. And they're all extremely different. Um, Kaiser has a system where they skip all that and they're, they start on day one. So that's a much, much faster process. So if you're a Kaiser patient, we'll be starting you within 10 days, which is a totally different awesome. thing. Uh, TRICARE has a multitude of requirements. So if you're a military family, TRICARE requires all of our individual therapists to be approved on their site. So that holds things back. There's all these different requirements that we're trying to do as fast as possible. We have 200 people at CARD whose job it is to get people through admissions and authorizations and credentialing. So it's kind of a crazy process, so please bear with us. Okay, but gives you an idea. And there are things that you can be doing during that time. CARD Definitely. is doing more 
to help you during that time um, that because I know what I know firsthand what it's like when you know okay this is what we want to do from that moment to the first time a therapist Definitely. is with your kid is excruciating right but there are things that you can do card's been very mindful about how to best use that time there's right. trainings that are available to you at a certain point you're there's somebody called a family support expert who gets to meet with you and help you to get your stuff in order we just had a conversation about that Definitely, other day yes. Vince Redmond and I yes. about getting them started earlier and um, and there, and there there are support groups there's ways that you can get connected so if you're in that process and feeling the pain of it and want more to do yeah. if you're already overwhelmed I don't want to overwhelm you more but if you want more to do you can reach out to me and I can help to connect you to some of the other things that you can be doing to get yourself ready because there's there's considerations there's things that you got to rearrange in your day yes, and in your absolutely. life and in your car absolutely. and in your bathroom to get yourself ready so Absolutely. that your kid can can get the most out of this definitely so there's even a uh, a video that i did this last summer that uh are my 10 tips for how to get the most out of your card program and we can be getting well, that to should, you yeah we should and, do that as a routine well there's a letter that each new client gets from me that goes through some of those and it, it plays on our tvs but if they haven't started at the center yet they won't be able to watch it but we can send it to you directly and um, and it's t my 10 tips from having gone through it and some of them are things that were told to me before I started card which made all the difference in the world so we, we can get that to you but write to me you know you can always write to me at s.penrod at autism-live.com and I'm happy to um, connect you with whatever you need to have okay uh, next question has to do with this little tenty thing that I have here on the thing. Somebody wants to know, do we still have the behavior inter mm -hmm. intervention plan builder? Yes, we do. Yeah. It is the BIP builder. It is in skills. Uh, so if you go to skillsforautism.com and you will see the BIP builder. I think we even have the BIP builder on its own. Don't yes, we? you can get the BIP builder. If you don't want all of skills, you can yep. get the BIP builder, which is fabulous. If you're looking to reduce behaviors that are a problem that's the thing to have uh, amazing more and more schools are using it it's remarkable absolutely i'm moving on to the next question hi shannon and dr doreen thank you for all your work in the field my daughter is 13 years old highly verbal and social but engages in very impulsive behavior uh even though she is aware of consequences of her behavior and has expressed not wanting to change certain behaviors it's most like she just cannot help it uh some examples are calling other kids names in the middle of a quiet class hurting her brother lifting her skirt or laughing when others are hurt do you have any advice on how i can teach my daughter to control this impulsivity and bridge the gap between what she knows to be appropriate behavior and what she actually engages in i truly don't see this behavior as attention seeking uh, but would love to uh, love help and support love to help support my daughter in her growth and she says thank you okay sure great um, so I, let me just again this is one of those cases where I don't know your child but just based on what you're writing my initial if I was meeting with you I would want to do a, a couple of little things to rule out and then I would do an, a functional behavior assessment so but one of the things, you know, calling out names concerns me. I don't know if your child is, a, could be anywhere on, this, on the whole realm of Tourette's, 
but I would want to do an evaluation to make sure she doesn't have Tourette's disorder. And that is because that has to do with calling out names or saying words that are inappropriate and if it, it is out of the control of the individual. So I'd want to get that evaluated first. You'd want to see a psychiatrist or a neurologist for that. That would be one thing. Outside of that, I would, you'd want to do a functional behavior assessment, which I don't think you can do. You need a BCBA or board certified behavior analyst to do it because it does sound attention seeking. However, you feel like it isn't attention seeking. So really it would be important to get a professional in there. And what they will do is they'll look at each individual behavior and try to find the function. They could have different functions, by the way. Uh, you know, saying something, what was it, uh, hurting the brother could be a, have a different function than attention-seeking. Lifting her skirt could be attention-seeking. It isn't, you know, attention-seeking also includes things like wanting to interact. Sometimes our kids are trying to interact and they don't know how else to interact and they think this is the way to get someone's attention because I'm supposed to be socially interacting and this is appropriate, they just don't know. So we have to find the function first. If we don't know the function, we don't know how to treat it. Like It's just that simple. And part of that is doing the medical evaluation to make sure this is not something neurological like Tourette's. If it isn't, then your next step is the FBA, Functional Behavior Assessment, and uh, a BCBA, Board Certified Behavior Analyst, can do that. Now, we do have an indirect functional assessment tool on our uh, skills website, I believe. It's called CIFA. Builder, yep, which we were just yep, talking about. Right? And it's called CARDS Indirect Functional Assessment, and it is CIFA, C-I-F-A. If you go on our Skills for Autism website, it's under in the BIP plan section. And uh, just try to do that. That answers a few, you answer questions about these individual behaviors. Don't treat them as one, they're all different behaviors. You'll answer questions and it'll suggest some possible functions. Uh, it is not as good as a direct functional behavior assessment, obviously. Usually what we do in ABA is we'll do an indirect. If it's very obvious to everyone, that's enough. If it isn't, we'll go ahead and do a direct. If that's even unclear, then what we do is what's called an experimental FBA. An experimental is like we provoke the behavior in order to see what exactly happens. But essentially at this point, let's just see, uh, let's start with the, evalu the medical evaluation on the indirect and then if you need help, we can try to give you BCBAs in your area, perhaps, who can do a direct FBA for you. And you do, you should have uh, BCBAs accessible at school. You can Definitely, ask, yes. You can ask at school for them to do an FBA. You can put it in an email. I'm asking for an FBA to be done on my child in regards to whatever behavior she's doing at school and that you would like it done by a BCBA, which stands for a Board Certified Behavior Analyst. Now for the CIFA and the, um, the Behavior Plan Intervention Builder, uh, you can go to skillsforautism.com and it's F-O-R, not the number four. Um, or you can call 877-975-4559. And you can tell them, I'm, I'm just interested in the Behavior Intervention Plan because I just want the CIFA. Yeah. Um, or you can ask for you know, a free trial of the whole thing, you know, what, whichever you want to do, but that is available. And to, and to let you know why we're advising this, the reason
reason is that the in in changing behavior, you obviously need to know what the cause is. So if someone is doing a particular challenging behavior because they want attention as opposed to, let's say, they want to escape a situation, the treatment is completely different for those two things, right? So it's really, really important because you're not going to be able to treat each of these behaviors without knowing why she's doing it. So the function is the why. And so it becomes very important. Now, uh, just start with that and then you can always write back in. But generally speaking, if, if you get a behavior analyst, the BCBA involved, they'll then teach you how to do the treatment once they know the function. As parents, I just want to say that often we just want to get to the treatment. Can you yes. just treat my child? Right, right. The thing that I always say to parents is if something breaks in your car, you don't just take it to the mechanic and, and say, I don't want you to look at it, I don't want you to test drive it, I just want you to start ripping things out and fixing them. Because it would be expensive and dangerous, right? right? Same thing with our kids. So they have to test drive and see what's going on, which Absolutely. that's that functional behavior assessment, figuring out what's going on before you start working on something. Right. Exactly. We do it with our cars, we understand it with our cars, right. so we just need to understand that with our kids. We're gonna take a short break, but when we come back, We've got two questions that I especially want to answer. One that's just come in from India about sleep and puberty. We're going to oh, love wow. that, right? Um, and then one about uh, we've got a desperate parent whose child exposed himself to somebody. So we're going to talk about that. It'll be a Great. tough little conversation, but we're going to have it after these messages. Welcome back to Autism Live. I mentioned that we are going to take a couple of questions. First one that came in online then one from YouTube. Uh, we got lots of things to do here. We're here with Dr. Doreen Grampiche, and she's answering your questions. It's called Ask Dr. Doreen. So from India, hello, Dr. Doreen and Mrs. Shannon. Happy New Year. Thank you. This is from India. Your show keeps me going. Mm. My question is, do sleep issues reemerge during puberty? My daughter used to sleep through the night after having some issues before her early intervention, but now that she's eight years old from the past few months, her sleep is disturbed, and mm. thank you. Oh. Yeah, it could be puberty-related, although eight is pretty young. Yeah. So I'm not sure if it is. I'm, lots of different things could be causing sleep problems. That could be environmental sounds that you're not aware of and she is because I don't know if your daughter has sound sensitivity so you want to make sure there's nothing going on in the environment here in the US I know a lot of times parents will come and tell me my daughter wakes up my son wakes up every night at like 3 a.m. I'm like well what else is going on and parents will look and be like something as simple as like the sprinklers go yeah. on and that disturbs our kids so First thing is make sure, uh, maybe do a recording of her room, like just put a cassette player or something and record her room so that you can see that. That's one thing. The second thing is make sure when she wakes up, I'm just throwing out ideas now, mm -hmm. she doesn't have access to food or drink. If you, if we, other than water, water's fine, but if you go to eat something or drink something sugary or ta with taste, you're, you're training your stomach to wake you up at that time. So that is not a good thing. Uh, the other things that come to mind are make sure there's no medical issues going on, obviously. Sometimes our kids who start seizures start seizures at night. So that is very important. And seizures do actually, not to scare you by any means, but 
seizures uh, start to appear in around eight, nine, ten, and a little bit later even. So you want to make sure that she's not having any kind of could be subclinical, so you know nothing major, but she, her brain is seizing. And the only way to know that is to do a sleep EEG, which I don't know if you have access to in India. Um, so that's the other thing. And then diet. Diet, of course, also influences our sleep patterns, definitely. Uh, so you want to make sure there's nothing new in her diet. Now, the easiest thing to do is to have one of, you know, a lot of uh, uh, either phones or iPhone, I, no, what are they called? Apple Watches huh? have, or these Fitbits, these things that measure, they, there's a lot of apps out there now that measure lots of things about your sleep. So it's actually kind of cool. You can even, on a phone, you can put the phone like right under her mattress and it'll feel the various times she wakes up the duration that she's up, how much movement is happening. So that will start giving you some information right away. Um, so let's gather some info first. And then what's really important is what you do when she wakes up. Because if you come into the room, if she has access to you, if she comes to you, if she has food, if she does anything other than stay in her bed and try to go back to sleep, we are now breaking her pattern and like causing her to... Uh, have sleep issues. So be very cautious with that. Let okay. us know more. Thank you so much. And I, I want to uh, get to this question because I know we've got a parent who's been very concerned. I just learned my adult son who lives with us exposed himself to a female worker. Uh, it was over three months before we were told this. Of course, our questions to him were met with stares. He did eventually admit to me that it's true. I don't know what to do. Did someone tell him to do this or did someone do it to him? Has he done this before? We need help. And she goes on to say that she lives in New York um, and that they are worried and nervous and is, is there a way to get help? And they are close to an office that we have in upstate New York. Right, and I see that she's a nurse, so that's great. It's a oh, nurse is that what that means? Nurse I... practitioner. Ah, okay. So not just a nurse, but a nurse practitioner, so like a, very close to a physician. So she, here's what, I, I can understand that you're concerned. So what I would say is that, um, first of all, don't be scared and, and don't think a million different things. I, a lot of times our, kids, our adults, kids, or our kids who are reaching adulthood, uh, will tend to do these things not because someone has, uh, let's say, molested them or done something inappropriate to them or demonstrated something appropriate, inappropriate or has in any way done anything of that nature, but more because they themselves don't realize what they're doing is not appropriate. So. From his perspective, he could have just been making a move, like really just trying to do something uh, to a female worker. Maybe he finds, he, you know, this is puberty. Our boys are starting to like really want to be with a female. Uh, he'll see a female, it might arouse him, and then he doesn't know anything about arousal, self-containment, self-regulation. Uh, you know, not doing certain things to people, not doing it in public, how it makes them feel, not all of that might be out of his realm of reality. I don't know your son, so I don't know his level of functioning, but these are assumptions I'm making. So what I would suggest, first of all, is don't 
panic at all about this. Um, you should, we, are, we do have an office near you. Our office is uh, very close to you. If you go on our website and look, uh, you will see the location of the office that is very, very close to you. Uh, we have uh, really good staff in that office, particularly one of my senior supervisors, Denise Ryan. Hey, Denise. Is there and she is fantastic with adults and she is fantastic with these types of issues. Denise is a board certified behavior analyst, of course. Currently, she works, she is involved with a lot of our continuing education for all of our staff at CARD. Denise is someone who's been at CARD over 20 years, so uh, but I, I think she also still sees patients. If not, she can definitely give you guidance for sure. So I would call that office and speak with Denise. Uh, you'll see the office that's closest to you. I just don't want to name it because I don't want you know I don't want to say up. too much. Yeah. I want to uh, keep your privacy. And um, the all I can say right now is that you need to just find out a little bit more if if it is correct that your child just was trying to make a move. Then it's as similar. It's as simple as teaching him what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Uh, you know, a lot of our kids at this age start to do behavior that a female would classify as stalking or as very inappropriate. And we just have to teach him self-regulation, uh, what things are appropriate that he cannot. And there's a lot of options. And you know, depending on his age and depending on how much of a problem this is, there are also medical treatments that can help you as well. Okay. And I think it's important. I mean, we, we all get so squeamish about this, the idea that, you know, oh my gosh, you know, my child did this. But I think we've seen in the news that this is, you know, that there, there are a certain amount uh, of this, there are grown men who are not on the spectrum that don't know what the rules are. Yes, so how yes, important yes. is it for us all as parents to make sure that we tell our young boys and our young girls, here are the rules. This is what's acceptable. This is what isn't acceptable. No one should do this to you, and you should not do this to anybody else. Absolutely. We can't assume, uh, but these things can be taught. They definitely can be taught, and as a parent, I guess I would have multiple fears. Thanks for pointing that out, Sh uh, Shannon, and I think you probably have multiple. One is like, Oh my God! Like, what? It, what did my child do to someone else? Yeah. And then it's, of course, oh my God! What? A, what, what can someone else do to my child? Yeah. And where did they get the idea uh, from? Yeah, it? Like what she's talking about. Where? Where do they even get the idea? Yeah, exactly. But like, don't panic because this is not uncommon. And uh, you know, as Shannon said, there are rules. We can teach the rules. Our kids generally do very well with the rules once they're taught. Our adults. Uh, but, you know, and hopefully this female worker is understanding of it. Obviously, if you didn't hear about it in three months, for three months, then, yeah. uh, you know, they're not, they're not angry or something. Uh, and it is one of those things that comes with autism. You know, autism, sometimes our kids, as you know, the biggest deficit in autism is perspective taking, theory of mind. And if you're unable to see other people's perspectives, you will do something like this because it is not you don't know societal rules and you don't know that you're maybe causing someone else to be shocked so you know i can't blame the the individual who did it 
because they just don't know any better. Absolutely. I want to take a question that came in on our YouTube channel. Uh, I think you say that Shay wants to know, hi, how much speech therapy should a child in school receive if he only talks to express his needs and wants and does not initiate a conversation? And she says, thank you. Sure. So my general belief, there's, you know, speech, generally speaking, uh, schools are not going to provide, or just the paradigm of speech therapy, there, you never really get intensive speech therapy. Obviously, the more speech, the better. So at this point, I would say, you know, five hours a week. That would be considered intensive speech therapy. But really what I think you're doing, you're going past speech a little bit, you're going into like advanced language areas, language and communication. So you might wanna be doing speech, like three to five hours of speech and add a full ABA program because your ABA program will really be focused on teaching social communication, which is one of the first signs of autism. So you might wanna add by talking to your school, I think the parent said school, uh, you need to get an ABA program added and not just speech. Speech alone is not gonna be enough. Uh, and boy, how much do I appreciate you saying that? Because a yeah. lot of times school is gonna tell you, oh, here's what we have. We have speech right. and OT for you, and that's our program for autism. And we as parents, we don't, how would we know that that's not enough, right? right? If right. nobody is telling us, so I'm glad, you know, because everybody needs to know that's just what they're offering. That's Absolutely. not enough. Um, and in California, Shannon, nowadays, you know, like you and I are old timers and like, there, you know, schools, Who there you was a time. You know, the old days, even like 20 years ago, you look at it, or even 10 years, 15 years ago, uh, schools did not have good programs here in California, but they are now improving in California. Absolutely. There are like much, much better programs. However, outside of California, the world is still very, very far behind this. So. When I go to other states, particularly the South, the East, like and Midwest, sometimes you see things that are just like reminiscent of 25 years ago in California. Oh. And so they, the parents out there are going through some of the same issues, exactly as you said. Forget about, hey, I'm gonna give you speech and OT. Sometimes it's just like, I have nothing to give you. Yeah. So, uh, or don't know even autism has the capability of improving, so yeah. yeah. It's frightening. Yeah. Gail has written in on YouTube and wants to know, are there any medications for self-harming? Yeah, so um, thank you, that's a very good question. Yes, there are, to answer your question, there are medications, they are not particularly for self-harming. They are medications that will generally stop any kind of excessive behavior. Uh, so that will include maybe some other behaviors that are not bad, but could be classified as excessive. So let me explain what I'm talking about. So for instance, Risperdal is a medication that is approved for autism. And what it does is it generally calms, okay? So if you're calming someone, that means they will self-harm less. Uh, but they will also be less motivated and they will probably be a little bit more lethargic and a little bit more numb, to, to, to put it that way. So, and un unfortunately, all medications are that way. They don't focus on just one particular area. For instance, the medications we give to individuals with ADHD, they just 
they, they are speed, it's speed, it's amphetamines. So what they do is as a whole, if it works, they just reduce the hyperactivity, which is a weird concept, but that's how it happens. You actually give someone speed and it reduces hyperactivity as a whole. That means your brain slows down too. So the, with Risperdal, which would be the medication in this case, you are calming the individual. Sometimes parents like that because the individual is completely out of control. Sometimes uh, they don't like it because it's causing the individual to act kind of like a zombie and parents don't like that. So sometimes it's better to, to do a uh, functional assessment again to deter determine what is causing the self-harm. Why is the person self-harming? They don't say any more than just self-harm. Yep. So usually from my experience, now in the old days, like 30, 40 years ago, we used to, uh, we didn't know anything about the functions of various behaviors. And, to, and a lot of people still today don't, will classify self-injurious behavior or self-harm under this category of repetitive stereotypical behaviors that we know nothing about. Now I, and that's the second area of symptomology for autism. So autism has to do with two areas of symptoms delays in social communication, and too many of these repetitive self-stimulatory kind of behaviors or excessive behaviors, one of which could be self-harming. From my perspective, when you look at self-harm, the individual is actually trying to communicate something. And usually self-harm is one of, one of a few different things, and I'll tell you, I don't know which applies to your child, but sometimes it's frustration, so the child is just frustrated. And the way they let everybody know is by hitting themselves. If I don't know if you've ever, many people, typically developing people, if they get to a certain level of frustration, they will self-harm. It's just that simple. Cutting, which teenagers do, is one form of self-harm. Now, self-harm could be frustration. It could be a sensory need. So for instance, the individual wants to feel something and they do this because their senses, uh, normally they're not feeling enough, and so this gives them some sort of sensory input that we all crave. It could be that. It could be pain-related. Sometimes our kids have major headaches, and we don't know about it, so they start to like hit their head against the wall because it actually detracts from the internal pain that they're, they're experiencing. So there's all these different things, and I, unfortunately, we don't know enough about self-harm. So doing, a, these are the things I would do if it was my child. I would do a functional behavior assessment. You need a behavior analyst to do that so that they can identify if there's anything <clears throat> that is somehow rewarding this behavior. So for instance, is the child getting a lot of attention every time they do self-harm? The quickest test for that is, does your child do self-harm behavior when no one else is around? Okay, do they do that? Another test is, do they only do self-harm when a demand is placed? Because generally speaking, if I place a demand on a child and they hit their head, I'm, most people will back off. And the child learns that and says, oh, this is a good way to get people to back off and leave me alone. So is it attention seeking? Is it a, a process of escape so that it allows the child to escape a demand? These are important functions that need to be identified. Is it due to pain? It has to be figured out. Is it due to uh, frustration from something else? These are very important things. Or is it just sensory? 
All, once you identify that, then you can identify how to deal with it, how to treat it. If you don't want to do all that, then probably the way to go is to do Risperdal because it will reduce some of the self-harm, but as I said, it'll also produce kind of this overall, I don't want to call it zombie, but overall lethargic type of change in the child. So I, I would suggest doing the behavioral modifications first, the behavior, functional behavior assessment, followed by behavioral interventions, and if all of that doesn't work, then you should be looking at meds. Okay, I want to take a break, but um, we had a question from Laura D that came in that I think might be better suited for Bonnie Yates tomorrow. Okay. Bonnie Yates is a special education attorney. She wrote in, uh, it's in reference to something you said a few minutes ago. She said, how can you get the school to add ABA at mm -hmm. school? She says, I know my daughter needs it and would benefit, but when I tried requesting it, they said she doesn't and what the teacher has in place is enough for now. So I can I can put that with Bonnie tomorrow or do yeah, you want to yeah, say anything about definitely. it? Definitely, please do throw it at Bonnie as well. Bonnie's very, very knowledgeable in that world. I would say you need to see a, and Bonnie will probably say the same thing, is that you'll need to see an expert, uh, which at this point should be a board certified behavior analyst who will do an evaluation and will write a recommendation. You can also see a psychologist. There are individuals who are very good at doing, or you can see a developmental pediatrician as well, but someone who will write, do, do a bunch of assessments on your child and write a report indicating what they actually need. If ABA is in their requirement, in their recommendations, then the school is more likely to provide it. Another trick, you know, if you don't want to go the full route with a lawyer, um, a lot of parents end up having to do that. But a, a quick litmus test to see whether they're going to cave or not is to go back to them and request. If you already have an IEP because you already have a diagnosis, request that they show you the data on what they're doing and how effective it is. They don't have data. <laughs> they don't. No, it's true. They don't and, have data. And if they see that you're asking for data and that you're going to push it that way and they think you're going to go to a lawyer, they might cough up some maybe ABA for you before you get to a lawyer. Yeah, but uh, also I just want to like give you a little bit more clarity on this because you're writing it. So the concept goes back to the Free and Appropriate Education Act. The concept is if the school district cannot offer your child what is appropriate, they need to pay someone else to do it. Okay, so that's where the, all this comes from. So before you get into any kind of lit litigious situation with your school, document everything. So videotape your child's uh, problems at school, uh, you know, the language, document it. Part of going to see a psychologist, let's say, who does testing is that documentation, is so that you have proof that your child is behind on certain areas. And the entire world knows that if they are behind and they have a diagnosis of ASD, the way to catch them up is ABA. And that speech, will, there's nothing, no literature that says a couple hours of speech is gonna catch your child up. There's thousands of documents and articles. That's why it is approved. That's why ABA is insurance funded. Now, if your school, what you're going for is trying to get your school to realize what they have is not appropriate and enough and that they need to pay for a program. The other alternative is to get them to pay for, like let's say 10 hours, 15 hours in school and also get your insurance coverage. Your insurance coverage will cover your child after school. So then you will get a school program and an after school program, which is the best thing for your child. Yeah. and and. Now is the best time ever 
um, for this argument because in, in May of last year, the Supreme Court came in with a decision about a child who was at a school where they were saying, look, we're doing enough, and they weren't doing an ABA program. The parents had the means to take him out of school, send him to another school where he got good help, and the child progressed so much that they were able to successfully get all the way to the, yes. they went to the Ninth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit said, no, um, it's enough. Schools just have to do the bare minimum. They call it in de minimis. Right. That's the phrase to use with your school because then it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said last year, de minimis is not enough. They haven't defined what is enough. Right. That's going to come in future cases. But if you go in and say to the school and if you want, we, I've done this before for other families, we have a packet of impact studies that show how effective ABA is that I can email those to you. And if you go in and say, hey, the Supreme Court said de minimis is not enough, um, so, you know, uh, they'll know that you mean business and you know what you're talking about. Right. If you say de minimis, they're going to go, what? Um, but we all need to be aware of that. De minimis is not the law of the land. It was for uh, a couple of years, but right. it is no longer by the Supreme Court. So there you have it. Okay. Uh, we'll take a break. I, well, I, we were going to take a break, but now okay. we've only got a few minutes. So Keep should we going. press on? Oh, of course. Of okay. Course. Are you okay? I'm totally fine. Okay. I, but I'm not seeing them. Uh, for some reason, it's not working today, Samantha. She's saying try to do some of the Facebook ones. And I didn't get to see them. They're not coming up. It's showing me who's... But if you can email them to me, great. Okay. I will say that we've had many questions that have come in in the last week, which is so funny to me that people are saying, is there a way to search by topic for the videos that we've done, sent in? And you've right. asked this in many different ways. Right, we're about to get a retool on the website and then you will be able to on so many things it's gonna blow your mind. But right now you can do that from Ask Dr. Doreen. It is not on our website. It lives on the card website. So what I wanna ask you to do, all you have to do is go into Google or whatever your search engine is and put in Ask Dr. Doreen and what will come up, one of the first things is the page on card where you can search by topic so it'll say potty training and then it will say what the questions were and if you click on the question it takes you directly to that question you know and, and on youtube you no longer have to search through hours and hours and hours to find the question that you want somebody had written in and said you know please i love the show but you know finding something mm -hmm. is really hard and we had come to the same conclusion it just has taken us a little while and all of that will get moved to our um, new website, which I think is coming to you within a month. I don't want to promise, but uh, really, really exciting. So somebody had written in and said, how can I search through past shows for help with a topic? I have a nine-year-old with autism who's a perfectionist. And we have answered those kinds of questions. Definitely. Uh, I knew issue at school. She is homeschooling now, and I'm seeing a big problem that this is for her. Any quick advice for a perfectionist? There's a lot of different programs when you go into skills and you should be looking, I believe, in the executive functioning area because you're going to be looking at the flexibility lessons. Uh, these are specifically for our kids who are perfectionists. They're kind of obsessive compulsive about certain things. And generally speaking, there's uh, two things about that. One is that you'll teach them ways to be flexible through the lessons that we have there, and there's lots of them. They'll learn to cope with things being imperfect. But at the same time, you need to realize that perfectionism and 
control comes from a certain level of anxiety might not be current anxiety it could be old anxiety that kind of at some point led the individual to learn that if I am in an unstable scenario I must be in control of everything and keep everything tidy and etc etc and uh, that has just stayed with them a certain level of anxiety don't forget is very uh, good it's very adaptive but too much perfectionism tends to make people freeze and so that's where you go to the flexibility lessons okay lot now all questions have come in from facebook because they were stuck on mine but i also want to say the the mom wrote in and said thank you so much for answering my question about the sleep she said i share a bed with my daughter i did not have a choice initially since we had just one room she doesn't have access to food or drink well she says i will look into the sound and seizures but she wants to know do subclinical seizures lead to some neurological deficits or regression they could they're not gonna they could put it's not serious regression so don't worry but it is uh, we do have kids where they are learning certain things and they will have a seizure and then they all the stuff they learned that day is now gone. So it does happen. So you need to look into that, definitely. But I, ideally, I don't know if it's possible for you now or not, but ideally uh, getting her into her own space at night would be very important. Absolutely. I'm going to rapid fire like five questions at you. Uh, Rafaya wants to know, my daughter is for doing ABA. We use cable or string as a reinforcement. She is learning, but her stimming with thread has not reduced. She wants it out of therapy also. She is a sensory seeker. She shakes the thread and sees it moving. Please help. Yep. Um, I, if it's getting, if it's very obsessive, I would probably not use it as a reinforcer, although the concept is there. The concept is correct. That's the pre-MAC principle. What you're doing is fine. But it probably would be a good idea to start trying to reduce it to very limited time frames. Uh, so what we've done in the past is, like you'll start, get a baseline of like how often she's getting it now, uh, right now, even though you're controlling it, and start to just reduce that so that essentially, let's say she would get it, ideally she would allow to be playing with string only in her room alone, uh, let's say for 10 minutes every two hours or something like that. So it's kind of like some like going to the restroom. Mm -hmm. um, so it becomes something that she's allowed, but it's an extremely thin schedule. So it's very, very limited to certain time frames in the day. Um, short of that, that's one of the hardest self-symmetry behaviors to get rid of. You need to also watch for her muscles. A lot of our kids who do this, they're after a while, they have a lot of aches and pains in these particular muscles because it strengthens those muscles pretty significantly. Perhaps try to teach her something adaptive that she can do to replace that, like painting. Uh, strokes of painting might help her reduce that. Like mm -hmm. a, a, having a paintbrush in a, in a, instead of, and it detracts, right, from just doing this in the, in the air to doing it on canvas. You can try to turn it into something. Of course, this is one, as you know, one of our little guys used to do yeah. that, and he became a very, very famous drummer. So if you can try to replace it with something that's a little bit more adaptive 
that's the way to go because then the individual is getting all of the sensory need they need through something very functional and adaptive. Okay. I can't choose between, but I can want... I, can I also address this one? This is an, yes. an adult themselves. Yes. And they're uh, saying that... I was going to go to that one. Yeah. I, I just, <laughs> yes. I read it and I was like, I got to address this one. And the answer is yes. Uh, your sister-in-law uh, can definitely help. Should with, I read the whole question? Please. Uh, can my sister-in-law, who is not qualified to work with Asperger's adults, but yet she is a high school French teacher here in the state of Idaho, be allowed to work with me in skills? Uh, that I skills that I have never gotten as an Asperger adult because my parent refused to get me tested growing up and they refused to admit that there was a problem. They always thought that I was the problem. The only services I'm getting now as an Asperger's adult are independent living skills and I do work and live on my own, but the care I am receiving is inadequate, which my mom won't admit. I think how lovely that you are advocating for yourself and wrote in. And I love that you've already said yes. It. I just love it. I just, <clears throat> I read your your paragraph and I was like oh my gosh I love you yes good for you and um, yes definitely and what I would suggest for your sister-in-law is to do two things if she's interested to first of all get some basic training and she can do that through the Institute for Behavior Training IBT and so she just needs to go on there and I would have her look through she doesn't really need to go through the professional path I would suggest she goes through uh, either the parent's path or the teacher path and learn sort of the basics and then through after, while doing that also I think you need to get on skills um, and skills for autism and then skills of course you yourself would go through and look at the very very high areas of skills in fact you're an adult so you could look at skills living which is for adults and I would go there. Actually, if you go to Skills Living, then start just answering all those questions. And you can see the areas where you need help and or you can select. And then those are written out in a way that your sister-in-law can help you with those as well. But Skills is the content. IBT is the process, the procedures. And uh, just go that path. And good for you. And if, there, if money becomes an issue, write into Shannon and we'll see what we can do to help you with some grants to get those two things going. There you go. I, I'm so sorry to Grace, the teacher who's written in. We're gonna to get to your question next week at the top, I swear. Uh, okay, we are out of time and we have to let Dr. Grampiche go and I know that's sad for all of us, but thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's it makes a such a difference, I'm, I so appreciate I'm it. I'm here the next several Wednesdays. Okay, we're thrilled about that. <laughs>